This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing the rest of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, decisions, decisions. It's tricky. It's actually quite hard being a politician, all the trade-offs that you have to make. Answering questions like, how much is a life actually worth? We're going to speak to some people who have been weighing all of that up in our big thing today. Before that, we will hear from the columnists and John Colshaw. The impressionist John Colshaw from Dead Ringers joins us to mark up a year since we said farewell to Boris Johnson. You would not allow him to uh, sort of evade and start uh, spouting Latin. At the... And he hasn't been heard of since. But as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We all learned a new word. Raise the importance of speaking skills. We learned that Tory Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson's plan to get his co-presenter to eat cat food did not go well. You appeared on TV as a cat, had uh, some feline feelings, yeah. and, and now we want to dismiss this as just if, a... If this is going blip. where I think it's going, and so, you're about to bring out a plate of whiskers, you can bugger off. We've got a, it's a tin of cat food here. It's, I don't know what brand it is, but it I'm looks... I'm not eating are you Delicious. Mental? Yes, he is. Uh, we learned what Ian Blackford thinks of Alan's Alex Salmond in a word. Marmite. Do you like marmite? No, I don't. Uh, we learned that with all the challenges the country is facing, at least the government's got a new chewing gum task force. And they came up with uh, an innovative fluid that they could use uh, that was eco-friendly uh, and with a mixture of detergent. And they then sprayed that onto the chewing gum. Although I think innovative fluid is what you get after too much oracy uh, we learned that lbc's ian dale thinks you should listen to this show instead of james o'brien between 10 and 1 you could make an exception oh no actually actually that's true <laughs> uh, we learned that rishi sunak really wants to get out of going to pmqs but you're not coming to prime minister's questions tomorrow are you or next week uh yes because i am uh, attending these Attending the official opening of the Captain Tom Pool and Spa. Uh, but the main thing we learned this week that shocked us to our core, that came out of the blue as a piece of totally new information, which we hadn't heard before, was this from Keir Starmer. My dad was a 
tool maker, worked in a factory all his life. And that is what we learned this week. Now let's take a look at the news with the columnists. The columnists on Times Radio. And as ever on a Friday morning, I'm joined by James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor of my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. All right, James, a simple good morning would have sufficed. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> I feel like we're at the stage now of us playing that clip. We've sort of, we, we peaked and it was fine and now you've really, really sort of ground you down. Yeah, I just, every time I hear it, it's just filled with regret and <laughs> uh, remorse. Well, somebody who's got no regrets at all, Guardian columnist uh, Gabby Hinsliff's here. Morning, Gabby. Absolutely no regrets, no shame. <laughs> <laughs> you well, Gabby? I'm very well, very well indeed. How? Because you haven't got any embarrassing clips to play of me, mate. No, well, give us give us time. We've got twenty <laughs> give it minutes. Time. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, the last time we spoke, everyone in your part of the world was very anxious about Boris Johnson having moved into your moved to, to Oxfordshire. Has everyone calmed down now? I, I think we're all still hanging on all the gossip. I mean, it's just getting wilder by the moment. I can't say any of it on the radio, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, it's very much giving everyone something to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about him and hear from him through the, the medium of John Colshaw in a moment. But first, uh, let's talk about Lord Frost's vision of a Tory victory. A vision in a dream. A fragment. We now turn to the BBC's political editor, Richard Bacon. Richard, tell us about today's news of an early 2028 general election and give us your verdict on the Sunak government. And it goes on. This is David Frost in The Telegraph. Uh, imagining it's 2028. Uh, Rishi Sunak has won the election in 2024, I think, and then has gone on to win again by putting Jacob Rees-Mogg in the cabinet, uh, Miriam Cates is education secretary, uh, lifting the ban on petrol cars, cutting taxes. Everything is going really well. Uh, is that realistic, Gabby? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's nailed on. I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> prediction. It's science, really. I mean, I do... I mean, Lately, the Telegraph comment pages have started to read a bit like they're written for a dare, and maybe, you know, this was sort of intended as a parody. But I do think you have to... You have to pinch yourself quite often to remember that actually David Frost used to be a civil servant not that long ago. I mean, he was paid. His entire job was to tactfully point out to politicians with stupid, unworkable ideas that they were stupid and unworkable without saying the word stupid. And you, I think this is just a reaction. I think this is like a long overdue thing, moment of, why can't I be the one who has a stupid idea for a moment? Why do I always have to be the responsible one? And I think that's what we're getting here. It's like a Shirley Valentine moment. It's very moving in a way. My favourite bit of it actually is when he says that the one of the one of his like top tips for the Tories winning a sort of surprise majority next time round is that they should get the Reform Party to knock out some Tories. Yes, the Reform. That's my best. That's the best bit. Uh, when the twenty twenty four election came, Labour was still in front, but their lead was falling. Sunak's expulsion of Tobias Elwood for persistently urging return to the EU and for one too many demands for NATO airstrikes on Russia reassured disaffected Tory voters that next time things really would be different. The Reform Party helped by standing only against what is called socialist conservatives. It's brilliant. I don't know why other party strategists have not picked up on this on this idea, really. It's the sort just of thing just that, lose some MPs it's to the gain sort of thing MPs. On a quiet week, works. I'd pitch this as my column and they'd throw it back and say it's ridiculous and at the last minute ask me to write another column. Um, James, what do you think? What does 2028 look like? Yeah, well, I mean, I mainly think envy because I think every columnist thinks, you know, every week, what if I wrote something really bonkers? What could I get away with? 
And I'd love to write something like that, something that mad. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed all this stuff about how, um, you know, we're going to build more gas, gas-fired power stations, abandon all green energy targets, uh, and yet there's no, you know, there's no mention of, uh, you know, what that might result in the climate and Britain being, you know, overwhelmed by rising sea levels or turned to some kind of parched desert. It all, I don't know, it's a very kind of partial... Stop talking Britain down. <laughs> it's a very partial view of uh, the unfolding of history, I thought, uh, with a very limited sort of... I don't know. And also immense confidence in all these kind of bananas policies are going to have immediate real world impact and there could be no possi- possible negative outcomes from any of these things. I'm sure he's I'm sure he'd hate the word, but he's basically manifesting. He thinks if he writes it all down, he just believe it hard enough. Yeah. If you just keep saying it it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah, the, the dream, the daydream well, is this actually is the, an the, underrated tool wrote, of political prediction. But you you wrote you wrote about people dreaming in your column this yeah, week. Yeah, this is why it's bad. People shouldn't have dreams. They just, this is this is exactly what they come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got? Do you, do you have dreams, Gabby? I can't discuss them on the radio. No, uh, <laughs> do they involve Boris Johnson? I, I don't think village? they're like. They're not really like David Frost's dreams. I'll be on it. I'll be no. honest. They don't don't feature. Don't don't feature. They don't quite feature so the much. abolition of all tariffs. Quite so much retreating from the UNHCR and cutting taxes with all the money that you've saved by losing some Tory MPs or something. I don't think I've followed the thread. Oh, every time I look at it, I find another bit that I yeah. love. If it keeps it, on giving. It also turned out we could build houses after all. Local councils had to choose between finding areas to build or having them chosen by the government and said and forced through by national referendum. If we have a referendum on house building, we're not building another house ever again. Honestly, if that doesn't bring back the blue wall, building a shed load more houses, I don't know what will. So, it is July the 7th, exactly a year ago today, Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister. We're delighted he joins us in the studio this morning. Good morning, Mr Johnson. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. I'm, I'm very delighted to 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 uh, be with you at a time of reflection, a year indeed since what I said uh, them the bricks. What have you been doing? We've not heard or seen of you since. I, I, I think reflecting, a great amount of re- reflecting, thinking back on perhaps, you know, other occupations, London Mayor or whatever, then I could get away with using comedy as a distraction, uh, speaking Latin to sort of divert uh, from what I ought to have been doing. I, 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 I reflect that the, the the job of PM, uh, that, that was not going to be a, a policy that was going to... Uh, that, uh, comedy distraction would not get me through that. So I, I, I should view it with some expectation <laughs> that that was always going to run to a clonking halt. OK, that answer is so um, implausible <laughs> that Boris Johnson has been doing any self-reflection. We should introduce John Colshaw. John, how are you? <laughs> it was quite, quite liberating to say that. <laughs> After a period of quiet reflection, I've now concluded yes. it wasn't for me. Yes, I, I, I think you know, <laughs> that person who, who hypnotised me into saying things <laughs> didn't work far. Do you miss him, John? Uh, no, not really. I mean, he's still sort of there, but just yeah. in this background sense. There's still enough of him to uh, filter through one's comedy sketches. Without ruining the country. <laughs> Without being the whole, you know, embodiment of the entire thrust of a comedy show. It's just, yeah, yeah. just go over there. You know, the chess piece is moved to there and other things are streaming through. Do you have a Rishi Sunak? Yes, he's. Um, he, I think the, the audience are just getting to know him a little bit. Mm. He he doesn't do as many speeches. He's not quite as out there as yeah. his predecessors. There's a more subtle presence that he seems to have. My formula to reach his voice was, you know, start at Blair, 
you know, the staccato of Blair and then soften it and make it run like that. I will do everything in my power to serve you. This is what the British people deserve. I will work day in and day out to serve you. Trust is earned. He seems to be on the border of singing almost. (laughs) Trust is earned and this is what I will do. It was like a, the border of a Cole Porter musical. It's only every a speech. matter of time before somebody suggests, look, we are, the polls aren't improving. <laughs> You're going to have to start singing during your speeches. <laughs> That's a thing. Yeah. This was totally missed out of uh, the column you just read out. That This should have been the missing element in the dream. Yeah. Rishi Sunak <laughs> begins singing. Yeah. And peace falls upon he the land. singing about <laughs> abolishing the European Court of Human Rights. I'm going to have, a, you know, those stools that Westlife sat on. <laughs> and when it comes to that part of the speech, I'm going to stand up and walk towards everybody and make <laughs> my pledges to you. <laughs> Although he'd have to hop down off the stools. <laughs> As a ladder. <laughs> a winch. <laughs> um, uh, Gabby. Tell me what's going on with Boris Johnson in your part of, the, of Oxfordshire. Well, he's, he, I think he's not spending a vast amount of time here. Oh. So, um, Is he abroad? You know, very busy, Pitching. very busy making money overseas, explaining what a tremendous success um, he, he very much has been. But of course, we're all awaiting the birth of the third, the third baby now. Of course you are. You can get the flags out again for that. Absolutely, bunting all round. Has he yet yeah. got a fourth side to his moat? You're worried about you're worried about this, but are you worried about people kind of rampaging across think, the I just think if you're going to buy a house, side. if you're going to buy a house with a moat, it having a three-sided moat has yeah, a yeah. But there's always there's always floor. something. It's never perfect, is it? A house, it's never quite where you wanted it. Or the third bedroom's always too small, and that that is what that is what he's suffering with the whole four-sided moat business. But anyway, I'm over Boris now. I'm moved on to David Frost. Fully paid up, David. Fully Frost paid up, fan of David Foster. Would, would you buy a house with a three-sided moat, John? I, I, I do like the idea of a four-sided moat. Although what one has to then realise how you're going to get in the uh, the, the, the building. <laughs> uh, bunting. What a very fine baby's name that is. Bunting. <laughs> that's pretty good, I think. <laughs> well, he's used all the other names already. So yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Bunting, he definitely needs bunting. Now, John, you're going back to Edinburgh. Yes, for indeed. not one but two shows, you greedy man. <laughs> yes, I've got a stand-up show called Imposter Syndrome, which will be quite a lot of improvisation, asking the audience for characters and just seeing where the audience right, well, guide you and just, so on. James, think about that. We're going to do that in a sec. We're going to test. So think of a think of a famous person and a, and a situation, and John will do that in a sec. Yes, yes, yes go on. And there's another show. I'm, I'm playing Huey Green in um, a show called Lena which looks at the life and career of Lena Zavaroni, one of the first sort of talent show big, big stars yeah, yeah. of the 1970s that um, set the pace for Britain's Got Talent and everything we have today. So, uh, yes, it's uh, one that um, celebrates what a trooper she was and remembers her talent too. So, yes, playing Huey Green in that. I think the last time we spoke, you would do, you'd just been doing Les Dawson. You were sort of working your way through huge names of, yes. of the 1970s. <laughs> exactly, Les Dawson, one of those very, very, very uh, happy characters to be... One sort of takes on a smile instantly with his beautiful, lugubrious language. Your best, your favourite Les Dawson joke? Oh, my goodness. Um, I gazed up to observe the majesty of the night sky, a purple vault fretted with a myriad points of light as the stars glistened, like diamonds cast across black velvet. I watched in awe as the crescent moon ascended the horizon like an ambered chariot across the zenith of the heavens towards the ebony void of infinite space. As I gazed up to observe this majestic sight, I thought to myself, I really must put a roof on this lavatory. <laughs> Dear Les, that's my favourite of Les's. Do you enjoy playing? Because uh, it, I suppose there's a difference between doing your sort of stand-up Im- Im- impressionist show and 
playing a, a real person in a in drama. Yes, exactly. In a comedy sketch, it, it's much more short form. A, a sketch is a, a bank job. You're in, hit the punchline and get out onto yeah. the next. With a play where you're, you're portraying one particular character, you can really stretch out, really get into the rhythm, tell a story. You're aiming for the nuggets of truth. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's a lovely way to do it. I, I'm sort of evolving into that more and more as time goes on. Is there someone you'd really like to play? Um, wow, there's always so, so many. Um, I think Ronnie Barker would be rather wonderful. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge Ronnie Barker. Yeah, the, the, just to, um, to get into that wonderful... Uh, comic constructive yeah. mind. Um, right, let's let's do some. So, what's the sort of thing you'd be looking for in your show that, that Gabby and James can offer up, and then you can wow us? I always start. I always walk out and say, "Right, uh, to you, the audience, who do you think? Any names, any characters, and just see who comes back." Go on, then, Gabby. Shout out a name. Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Theresa May, and I've been having speech therapy to sound like Michael Caine, so I'll be more impactful. <laughs> Very good, uh, James. Prince Harry. Prince Harry, yes, I remember in a lineup at uh, Prince's Trust show some years ago, and Harry was the first one I was introduced to, and Prince Charles, as he was then, was a little further down the line, and Harry went, oh man, hey, you, you know, you, you went too easy on par, I wanted to hear more of par, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you let him off the hook, didn't you? You uh, let him off the hook. Well, <laughs> he, he's made up for that since. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to think of one now. Right, Gordon Brown? Um, yes, that's a, a, a voice of, of great celebration, wonderful depth, a wonderful rhythm. Um, and I think now, uh, when he uh, appears on many television shows and interviews, um, we are reassured uh, by his wisdom. And I, I think now it's, it's a viewpoint that we really do value <laughs> and that we really need to hear more of. And um, I, I, I think he should make a comeback. What about Ed Miliband? He's, he's like, he went away and now he's yeah. coming back and there's a big debate whether or not he should be sacked. Yes, <laughs> yes. Ed Miliband, you, you, his voice is placed so deep into the dia diaphragm, almost way, way down here. And, you know, <laughs> what I say, what I say to the people of this country, up and down the country, when I talk to them on the doorstep, what they say to me is, who are you? What are you doing on my doorstep? <laughs> yeah, really in the depth of the diaphragm. Go on then, uh, Gabby, you can have another one. Can you do Jeremy Corbyn talking of comebacks? We yes, don't Jeremy Corbyn. want to come back. Yes, quite steady in this sort of way. I say thank you to the party membership. I say thank you to all of those who have voted. I say thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. If you want to text in 87222, start your message with word times. We do, um, uh, we'll do some more with John. Um, uh, James? One more? Yeah. Oh, do the king. Oh, nice. Well, I'm really very happy that you said that. I do think there is a greater amount of stateliness oh, now. Nice. That's brilliant. The, the sense of gravitas has rather increased, don't you think? Yes. Oh, that's very nice. That is awesome. Is there anyone that you'd really like to be able to do that you... Is, I mean, Rishi Sunak, like you said, there's not a lot going on there. Is there someone that's hard yes. to get a handle on? I think a year down the line, it might, well, let, let's... Who knows what amount of time, but just, uh, at a further period down the line, when the audience just know Rishi a bit better, he just needs to sink into the consciousness. Yeah. He's, he's being worked out at the moment. Uh, David Cameron was always quite tricky. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, quite sort of anodyne, you know, sort of a, a repeated hand gesture like that and wanting the interview to be over as quickly as possible. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about Keir Starmer? Yeah, now, Duncan Wisby at Dead Ringers does uh, a beautiful Keir Starmer. Yeah, very much considered and rather like a 
supplied geography teacher who is still working it out. And he, he kind of, um, he turns everything into something rather turgid and very sensible. Yeah. You know, <laughs> bring in a bit of rock and roll here. Well, considering the, uh, oh, uh, somebody on the text says, Nelson Mandela? Nelson Mandela, yes. A very stately accent. <laughs> wonderful for giving speeches, wonderful yeah. for portraying the big moments. With great stateliness, a, a king amongst men, absolutely. I just remember, we should get you to. We, who should we get you to do politics about the boring bits? At boy, can you do politics about the boring bits? But is Boris Johnson? This is I'm Boris Johnson. This is politics about the boring bits. I am Boris Johnson. This is this is I can't even say that. This is politics without the boring bits. Rightly so. Really good. Warren says, "What a talent, John Coleshaw is." Please get him back soon. Best impressions out there by far. Can John do Matt Chorley? Says someone else. I assume not. Yes, I've, be, I've just been listening. I've just been listening. I'll, I'll get a few. I'll get. I'll get a few more. There's almost a sort of. Uh, I suppose if we started with the Jonathan Ross and sort of worked back <laughs> into a more formal sense, that, that's probably where. Very often, it's how what yeah, people I, sound my, like. That's exactly where Matt started. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> my my no, because I, my ass. I have problems. My, I'm not good with the ass. Yes, I think that's prob that's probably the, the link. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think it sounds it sounds very vernacular and conversational. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's a distinctive thing. Thank you, John. John Coleshaw joining Gabby Hinsliff and James Merritt there. Of course, you can read James every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Decisions Decisions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Ah, decisions, decisions. Every political decision requires a trade-off. Building on the green belt. Good for reducing house prices, bad for conservation. Increasing interest rates, good for savers, bad for borrowers. And paying for new medicines or treatments, that could be good for a small number of people with a particular illness, but at a big economic cost to everyone else. So today we want to take a look at how politicians and policymakers weigh up these trade-offs when making the decisions that affect all of our lives and do they need to be more honest about them? Do politicians have the evidence they need to make these major decisions? And can they then be up front with the public and say not everyone is going to be a winner? 
So we've assembled a great panel of big brains uh, today. I'm joined in the studio by Tracy Brown. She's Director of Sense About Science, a charity aimed at promoting public interest in science. Morning, Tracy. Good to see you. Uh, We've also got on the line Paul Dolan, Professor in Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics. Hi, Paul. Hello, good morning, Matt. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, Sir Robert Choate, uh, Chair of the UK Statistics Authority, used to run the of- Office for Budget Responsibility. Hi, Robert. Good morning. And uh, somebody who's been on the other side of the fence, uh, making decisions as a minister, uh, the Labour MP, Margaret Hodge, is here. Hi, Margaret. Hi. So, uh, Tracy, let's start with the... Well, before we we'll get into some of the sort of um, the, the examples in a moment, but... Explain your interest in it, the science behind the politics, if you like. Well, it's kind of the evidence, yeah, the evidence behind the politics. So my organisation, Sense About Science, has a reputation for chasing up missing bits of evidence uh, behind government policies. And we found during the pandemic, um, increasingly we were being contacted, particularly once we got past that initial emergency response, um, increasingly contacted by people asking what on earth is the reasoning mm. about you know how how we close schools and you know how are we valuing children's education versus um, people's lives and that kind of thing so there was a lot of confusion about it and when we tried to dig into that we found that there was as much confusion among ministers um, uh, and government officials as there was um, among the public and looking at evidence okay let's look at one of the examples i, I was just talking about um when we as a society decide how much to spend on a new drug or treatment it sounds complicated, but actually, this is one area where there are rules, essentially. Indeed, yeah. That, so, so that was actually a very political thing when it happened, when Nice was introduced, uh, making those kind of judgments. The national, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Yeah, so that that actually uh, evaluates whether or not it's worth the NHS spending money on a drug. Is it going to give you more years of life, you know, in good condition? Um, and is it going to be worthwhile compared to other drugs that are available and so on? Um, that People did actually, sque- they were squeamish about that at the time. They said, oh, it's really hard to have these actuarial conversations about people's lives and how much they deserve and all that kind of thing. So, so what, what is the rule? Where is the threshold set? So there, there, it just slightly depends on the on the area and what other medicines yeah. are available. But the, but the point is we have broadly accepted it. And I yeah. think in most parts of life, we accept that a calculation has to be made um, about whether you're taking people out of the economy um, or, you know, yeah. the harm is done to people uh, who are coming into the economy or the harm is done at the level of child's education, which will be a lifelong harm, versus things that might happen to people who are no longer productive. You know, we, we know it sounds awful, but we do actually... And in life, we make those things up. Because if, yeah, actually, if somebody came along and said, look, we've got this drug, cures uh, this illness, but it is going to cost a billion pounds a week, somebody's clearly going to decide, well, that's... That's too much. And in fact, so is it 20, normally nice, usually decided medicine is value for money if it costs the NHS 20, between 20 and 30,000 pounds per quality adjusted life year. Yeah. And that is the measure that, and yeah. that goes into other areas of policy as well. That yeah. We accept that that's how we, how we calculate things. Um, as I say, people are a little bit squeamish about it, but broadly that's been the, the measure. Yeah. Um, the uh, obviously the pandemic produced a whole different set of things, and everyone mm. is asking, "What is the ethical framework yeah. here?" You know, let's bring in Robert because Robert, you've obviously you've come from this as, from the money side when you were at the Office of Budget Responsibility. Is this measurement being used by government departments like the Treasury as well when trying to work out um, whether or not this this pound is worth spending on this project or this policy or this idea? 
Well, lots of uh, policies, uh, essentially ministers and government departments are asked to come up with impact assessments. So something that's going to give you a sense of what, what, uh, uh, of what the impact is likely to be, and then you can uh, deploy that against the evidence of, of alternative policies. But uh, it's clearly, I think, desirable for accountability, for the quality of the policy, for the quality of the public debate around them, that you bring as much evidence and transparency when governments are explaining you know, what they're trying to achieve, how and what effect they think it's going to have. The challenge, of course, is that an awful lot of policies have multiple effects. Uh, and it's, it's looking at the uh, not just what you're trying to achieve and whether you're going to achieve that, but the side effects which can be uh, positive or negative. And some of the challenges in thinking of, about all of that, as you say, one of them is that in many cases, some people win, some people lose. For example, uh, you know, uh, building HS2, uh, people tend to be enthusiastic about that if they're potentially near a station, less enthusiastic about it if they're near a line. Uh, there are some <laughs> effects that take place today and some tomorrow. Uh, some are certain, some are uncertain. Uh, some are actually e relatively easy, although you know, uh, conceptually easy, if not practically easy to quantify, some aren't. So uh, Brexit, for example, you know, might want to have a quantified answer to the question, what do you think the impact's going to be on the economy and the public finances? But it's harder to quantify. Well, I think it's important because of the increase in sovereignty we're going to get. Uh, so there's a whole lot of difficulties in actually turning the, uh, the obvious common sense of wanting to be clear about what you're trying to achieve, what else might happen. Actually turning that into a set of calculations and explanations isn't straightforward. And, and Paul, you've written a book called uh, Happiness by Design, uh, about how to redesign our lives for maximum happiness. And ha happiness, again, really hard to measure in, you know, in a, on a spreadsheet where you're looking at costs and possible benefits. And, uh, um, it, you know, if we are just looking at the, like the, the hard numbers. Are we missing something, do you think? Yeah, I mean, happiness isn't easy to measure, but you can ask people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you go to doctors uh, and you're in pain, they ask you how much it hurts. Um, it's a pretty good guide to the pain you're in. And actually, pain medication is is largely allocated on how much you say it hurts. So it's really about capturing that richness of people's experiences, because ultimately everything that we do, be it HS2 um, through to healthcare, through to education, is about improving people's quality and length of life. And so it's incumbent on us at some point to make explicit how we value those impacts on people's life experiences and life expectancies, and ultimately try to capture them in a single index insofar as that's possible. And Margaret, when you're a minister trying to weigh all these things up, did you feel that you had enough of that information? Um, or, or sometimes do you just have to go, OK, I've absorbed all of that, but I still think this is a good idea and I want to do it anyway? Sadly, uh, too many ministers do that. I think we did have um, information. We always looked for evidence and information. I'm, I'm thinking about Shore Start in particular, where we, when we started that in the UK, um, there was all the American evidence about how Head Start of, of uh, investment in children in their early years really changed, transformed children's life chances. So we, we, we did use that evidence. I think what I felt feel is that academics... Um, often take too long and uh, are too perfect in their research. They're not pragmatic to answer the questions that we need to answer day to day. And so too often the evidence comes too late. I think that's one issue. And then the other issue is, I mean, uh, politicians have, 
wary about engaging in some very difficult trade-off debates. I always think, Matt, about the Labour government. We never really engage in a debate about uh, raising taxes or and funding public services properly. Um, and we should have done prob- prob- uh, probably because we're pretty low tax economy with a uh, with aspirations to high public services and then um, sometimes people just don't want to tell the truth when they are promoting their um, ideologies so brexit would be a good example the 350 million pounds on the bus that will go to the nhs was just not a truth uh, but if they had told the truth and used the evidence uh, they might not have got the vote um, Robert, what about um, the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility in the Treasury? Do you think they should be including happiness in there? I mean, David Cameron tried to when he set up the the happy, the well, the well, the well-being index. I think where where the ONS me- do measure this all the time. But you know, ultimately, everyone still obsesses about whether or not GDP is up by 0.1 percent or down by 0.1 percent, which doesn't really have a great bearing on anyone's day-to-day experience. Um, well, uh, it's certainly true that, uh, that looking at those broader measures of well-being, uh, some of which would be subjective, some of which would be slightly more je- objective as a sensible idea. And in the ONS, Office for National Statistics, has uh, uh, published some new information on that just in the last uh, couple of days. So that is an important area uh, of research. Uh, to uh, look at. I think one you have to slightly avoid the idea that policy is always set with a laser-like focus on what it's going to achieve for GDP uh, and doesn't look at other things. If you look at the operation of a planning system, how long it took you know, uh, uh, Pinewood Studios to get permission to increase in size. You can see that it's, you know, policy is not always driven by a sort of obsessive view of what's going to maximise GDP. All the sort of winners and losers, non-economic effects, uh, they are taken into a, into account. So I think it's certainly useful for uh, governments to be able to look at those things to uh, to assess them alongside the impact of GDP and where it's possible as the national accounts advance we may get to the stage where you can publish a GDP number but then also a broader well-being number alongside it to say well the economy grew by this amount but for example consequences for uh, the natural world or, or the environment produces a picture and that would allow you to take both of those things into account at once. Um, Tracy, is there a risk with this that, that actually we just get completely bogged down? We don't do anything. Yeah. Like so, actually, we argue for, as, as there's a story in the papers today about Euston Station. That there's the ongoing arguments about the cost benefits and of uh, taking HS2 to Euston Station. Just means that actually nobody knows if we're ever going to have a new station at Euston Station because it actually it's easier to just keep arguing and saying the case hasn't been made, and then we don't do anything. Yeah, and of course, it's a political decision what you choose to include in your costs and benefits. Um, oh, of course. Basically, uh, that, you mean diddling the figures? Yeah, well, you know, game, <laughs> yeah, game playing. Um, so, but, but there's, I, I think the thing here is that in every part of policy, there's some element of it that would be very helpful for politicians if it was sorted out according to some sort of agreed schematic, you know, because um, it's very hard on the fly. You know, if a child has been... There are areas in our lives where we do accept that, you know, let's throw everything at it. Mm. Child's been abducted, someone's left up a mountain, someone goes off a boat at sea. Those are places where we just say, do you know what, whatever we've got, we throw at it. Right, but there are also hard calculations that are made. How much are you going to invest in rescue services? How many people will be left up a mountain as a result of that? Um, and, And are we prepared to carry that, you know, casualty rate with us? To some extent, the more you've had those conversations, or at least just a little bit below the surface settled those things in, a, in policy practice, the easier it is when a row flares up. 
You know, we saw this in the States, actually, Obama early on in his, in his um, uh, presidency was really pushed on um, um, overruling over, uh, the FDA and licensing a, a drug for late care breast cancer, uh, pushed by lobby groups and campaign groups and so on. Um, and in the end, we ended up with women who actually had awful, uh, you know, late, late incontinence and various side effects because they um, uh, this drug had been pushed through in this way. Um, and people learned the lesson that actually it's good if you resolve these things to some degree, you know, but you Matt, will always be... Before you get there. Sorry, go with Margaret, come in. I, I was just going to come in on two things. I think the capital projects, the things like Euston that you talked about, are really difficult because it's the very long-term benefit. I think if you talk to those involved in HS2, and I'm not particularly an HS2 supporter, but they would argue that in, it's difficult to justify today that it's value for money. But in 20 years' time, if we haven't done it, uh, we will regret not having a, 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 an appropriate transport infrastructure. That was the first thing I wanted to say. So these things aren't, I don't think evidence can really always help you in those sort of decisions. But the other thing is, I think there's a reluctance by politicians to be honest about the evidence. Uh, and the trade-offs. And I think that is regrettable. And I think, you know, we always, there's a sort of tendency to think, oh, the public are stupid, they won't understand. And I think if we engage with them in debates, um, uh, in, interesting enough, and citizens' juries are something that have been used in the past as a way of trying to deal with some of these tricky issues where you do have trade-offs, I think the public would actually we gain more trust and there'd be more credibility in politicians in the decisions they take. But Paul, part of the problem with this, isn't it, is ultimately we're dealing with human beings and we're not always rational. And actually the example that Tracy was just using of, you know, we could spend loads of money, as they did with the the, the, the submarine, you know, the amount of money yeah. that was spent on, on that, uh, which you <laughs> wouldn't spend if those five people had a serious illness and the drugs were really expensive. Yeah, if only people were weren't so stupid, eh, Matt? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but I mean, that's, I that's the thing. thing when when you say no, 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 I mean, as a as a serious point, that, that so so of course context matters, um, and the value that we place on life or on uh, health states and so on, we all change according to the context. But but I think um, to speak to the point that Margaret just made, I think it's about being honest about the trade-offs that are being made, even if they're very context-dependent. Um, and actually, as a first-order condition, I know H, uh, HS2 has been mentioned a few times, uh, there'll be people on this call closer to it than I am, but as a first-order question, it doesn't seem to be clear even what the point of Houston is. So, like, I mean, <laughs> even before even before you get into the cost-benefit, even before you get into, you know, questions of trade-offs and how you might weigh up things against one another there's a first order question of just what the objectives are and i think and i think the public are grown up enough to be able to understand that i think you know we talk a lot about politicians we talk about a lot about getting the politicians that we deserve you know if we assume they're all you know uh after themselves and 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 and, and so on then the chances are they'll probably end up being like that but equally there's a conversation the other way around if the politicians assume that the public don't get it well, then don't be surprised if they don't. But I but I actually think they do. I think all of us know that we can't have everything. I mean, that's sort of one of the first things that we try and teach our kids, isn't it? Is that, is that you can't have everything. Yeah, um, Tracy, come so, in. Yeah. 
I, I, so I, I think I really agree with that, Matt, because I, I think that the, the public actually can handle a lot more of this conversation than politicians think they can. Yeah. In the political imagination is this idea of being okay. tricked into saying lives don't matter. And so they retreat into giving no explanation, when in fact what you need is just a better explanation and a more open one. I think actually Margaret's a great example of someone who has been willing um, to give an explanation, uh, but I wish we had more like her. Um, Margaret, do you do you, you look around? Uh, you know, politicians and ministers today, and wish wish they were more like you. <laughs> <laughs> the easiest question I've ever asked anyone. Margaret, would the world be better if more people were like <laughs> Margaret Hodge? <laughs> no, 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 I think that's terrible. But um, I mean, I do wish, I do wish that uh, people would would use would use the evidence and when i chaired the public accounts committee for example it drove me mad when we looked at sort of value for money i remember when the uh, coalition government privatized all the welfare to work um services and labor had done a bit of that you know we had tried bringing in the private sector to deliver welfare to work advice and we had evidence which demonstrated that it didn't work and yet the government went to, uh went ahead and did it uh, um so i do wish they would use evidence i was in a debate this week uh on a very on, on a very difficult issue uh in relation to um uh, uh, you know the ban, uh, the boycotting of Israeli goods, and there is evidence there of trying to bring in a ban on boycotts when uh, Margaret Thatcher was around, and we were all busy um, on, on anti-apartheid and uh, uh, boycotting South African goods. She tried to legislate to stop local authorities doing that. That legislation didn't work. The government's doing exactly the same thing again. And can I just make one more point, Matt, which I think is really important. If politicians don't trust the public and don't engage with them, you can't then be surprised if the public start believing lies and acting in, in that way. So if you think about things like the um, anti-vax brigade yeah. and, uh, and and what they're doing, or you think about uh, climate change deniers and the, and, and the dangerous impact they're having. So honesty... And using the evidence is absolutely critical for building the culture that deals with some of these very difficult problems. Let's turn our attention now to uh, COVID. Probably the moment when lots of us started thinking about some of these big questions. Uh, it's hard to get away from this. We're guided by the science and everything that we do. We are going to be guided by the science. We'll be guided by the clinical science. We're guided very much by, by the science and, and whether we think that the advice that we've given is, is working. Tracy Brown from the sense about science. Were we too much guided by the science? Well, I think actually what we were guided by in the end was trying to avoid full occupancy in NHS hospitals. Um, that's ultimately what became the trump card of, of policy decision making in a sort of a weird way, actually, because it seemed very sensible initially as an emergency response and, and so on. But it did seem to become the, the driving factor, kind of perhaps followed by a reduction of transmission. Yeah. Um, and that's a unique thing. We've never been in this position where something which is, you know, if you take something like the hospitals situation, something which is actually not a fixed value suddenly becomes this thing that we have to work towards, whatever the budget to the was last year. To the exclusion of everything else. To the exclusion yeah, yeah. of other things, which was, it just put people in a very strange position of wondering, even government departments were wondering, well, where does where does education sit? Where does transport sit? Yeah. Where does, you know, the economy and, sit? And, and, and yeah, Robert, so where does the economy sit? If we've been followed by the economy, so many more of those decisions would have been very different. 
Yeah, it's it's hard to say. In some areas, you can you people have argued there are sort of clear trade offs. You know, lockdowns and their impact on public health on the one side, and their impact on uh, the economy and, and longer term economic well being on the other. Some people would say, well, you obviously had you know Sage, you had the group of experts mustered together to be providing input on. Uh, uh, on the public health side, but you didn't. There was a recent Institute for Government report on the Treasury through the, the early phase of the COVID crisis in particular, and the an economic analysis perhaps wasn't there uh, to put alongside uh, to put alongside that. But I think, as Tracy said, there's, there's, there's practical issues here as well. Uh, the particular challenge of whether you thought that the NHS was going to hit sudden capacity looked uh, probably at the time a more urgent short-term issue to deal with than that longer-term trade-off. So once again, it's the time horizons over which you're looking at can complicate things as well as the difficulty of any judgment at any given moment. And the trouble, Margaret, with, uh, Margaret Hodge, with politicians is that what's happening this week and next week is much more important than what's happening in the next decade. Yeah, I, th I, I do think that's a problem. The one thing with COVID that uh, we never, I don't think we ever really thought through properly was the impact, particularly on children. So, you know, I was yesterday with a, a group of um, grad students who are graduating. Um, uh, this is a group that they, this is a, a, a group where they had the new GCSE. They had to go through that with all the changes that meant. Yeah. Then had COVID. Uh, they then had the assessments for their A-levels, so they weren't um, allowed to really, they weren't assessed on their ability, they were assessed on things like the area, if you remember, and one of the students I was talking to lost her place in a university because of that, and now they're dealing with um, um, uh, uh, the, the problem about market. Yeah, not even getting their degrees uh, after all of that. Yeah. I mean, in a way, all that, and if you think of the young kids who didn't go to school and didn't socialise, and particularly kids from uh, uh, more challenging backgrounds where actually going to nursery is really important to develop all those skills they need for effective learning later on, I think we never thought through that properly. We never yeah. ever thought um, thanks for that, Margaret. Uh, uh, Paul Dolan, you, as a behavioural scientist, there was lots of talk of behavioural science at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was going to be the, the great thing that got everyone washing their hands and to stay at home. And then it slightly became a bit of a dirty word. Do you feel like you've you've your reputation's recovered? Well, mine. Well, mine is. But not mine your is, personally. Other, as a, as a, as a <laughs> yeah, profession, no, I, not yours personally. Well, I was going to say about the academic point just very quickly that Margaret mentioned earlier. I think academics do, she's absolutely right, they do often take too too, too long. And, and of course, policy is, is often much more urgent than that. But what we saw in COVID was that, you know, we obviously couldn't wait long for evidence. But what that makes it fundamentally important is that you have the processes in place that reach the right conclusions. And that requires representation across different disciplines. So when it was talking about following the science, it wasn't following the social science. It was an economic social crisis as well as a health one. And so what you needed was, was, was experts with a view on each of those issues. And so for example, when we chose to shut schools, that isn't an epidemiological question on its own. Um, it's of course a social one. Yeah. And my concern very, very early on that there that there wasn't representation of people who would have known about the impact of, for example, you know, shutting schools on those kids that would have been most harmed by it. So lessons learned moving forward are that we have the right voices in the room whenever we whenever we make these kinds of challenging choices. And I suppose, um, uh, Tracy, the other thing is that the politician, once the politicians announce they're going to do the thing, it's sort of too late. 
uh, to then start getting into the ins and outs. So, so you know, HS2 is happening and the, the, a hole's been dug and, you know, people are still arguing about the cost-benefit analysis. And sometimes they just want to do things because they think it's the right thing to do or they like yeah. the idea of it. That's right. I mean, I think it's worth noting that actually they had a brilliant opportunity with COVID to level with people about evidence emerging, things being uncertain, because there was so much restraint. We all just looked at that and thought, God, what a position to yeah. be in to have to make those decisions. Even the opposition and the media did that. Um, so they really missed their opportunity there. But I think I think it's important to say this. What COVID really taught me was I've been an advocate of evidence, you know, using evidence well in policy, communicating it openly or, you know, all my career. Um, but what it really taught me is it's also important to be open and honest about values. And values have obviously a, right, a, a role to play. If we, if we say, for example, that, that our, our city, you know, Birmingham, should host the Olympics um, because it's a really prestigious thing to do, right? That's a value statement. I can't test that. It's a pollable question, but it's not a testable question. If I say Birmingham should host the Olympics because more kids will get involved in sport and that will reduce childhood obesity, that's a testable question. And I should have to bring my evidence and the public should demand that I do so. So I think that's the thing. And every policy is a mix of testable yeah, yeah. and untestable, what we call pollable questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think just being frank about which are which, which we, despite all the pains to science, we lost that during the pandemic. You know, it was not really clear what actual science you were talking about about when you said following the science. Following the science, because, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, just before, um, I just want to ask the, non, the non-politicians, the non given everything the conversation we've been having, do you, would you ever swap it to become a politician yourself? Uh, Robert Choke, first of all. Uh, no, I'm very happy to uh, look <laughs> on from the sidelines. Thank you very much. Very and good. probably everybody else should be glad of that too. Paul? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but think, think of all the change you could make, Paul. You could make people so happy. <laughs> Well, okay then. Okay, hell yes. <laughs> Tracy, do you know what? I'm the person who should go into politics, but but I've been put off. You've been put off just yeah. because of yeah, yeah, how tough it is. Yeah, and because yeah. you have to work so hard to climb the climb the pole for for central for, for front bench positions. Yeah. Um, well, listen, it's been absolutely fascinating. Really, really interesting. I hope it's made uh, us all think a bit more about how, how hard it is for those lovely politicians. Uh, Dame Margaret Hodge uh, joined us. Uh, a massive thanks to Tracy Brown from Sense About Science, Professor Paul Dolan from the London School of Economics, and Sir Robert Choate, who is chair of the UK Statistics Authority. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today and for this week. Don't forget to hit subscribe or even post a review if you're that way inclined. You can get in touch with me, email me matt at times.radio with your thoughts and complaints. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.